day out there today, isn't it? <laughs> Every day is beautiful anymore. We can get up, be about. It's beautiful. This is the day the Lord's made. We'll just rejoice and be glad in it. We're so delighted to have each one of you here this morning. I got up this morning. I thought, I wonder how many people we'll have here this morning. We've all almost got a full crowd, so it's good to have each one here. And if you're visiting, uh, we're certainly glad that you can be with us today. You're honored guest. We hope that you'll come back at every opportunity. Uh, right off the bat, I'm going to say it's good to see Jim back with us. He had that surgery on that shoulder and had been able to be with us for a couple of weeks, but we're glad that he's back with us today, Jim Busby. Got a few announcements before we begin our services. Uh, you bear with me. Today we're going to present uh, the 2024 budget for the church. And that will be done after the uh, closing prayer today in our worship service. And those of you that uh, need to leave, don't want to do that, we've got copies of the budget. Get a copy of that, take it home with you, look it over. Uh, but anyway, if you feel like you need to leave, uh, please do so. You're welcome to do that. But those of you uh, that want to stay, then Max is going to be presenting the budget. And he told me it'll take about five minutes to do that, so it'll be long. So uh, some of you, we'd, we'd like to have as many of you stay if you can. Also, uh, I'd like to congratulate White 
in Lane 4A for reciting their words of wisdom. Uh, those young boys do a really good job, and uh, even up here uh, before us, we're thankful for them and for their mother and their father that's directing them in the right paths. I'd like to congratulate uh, David for receiving the Student of the Month Award at school. So it's a good job, David. We appreciate you and all that you do here for us. And uh, uh, Mackenzie uh, Clearman is working on our church calendar for the Fellowship Hall. And uh, if you have a need for the Fellowship Hall, contact Mackenzie. She'll get you down on the calendar so there's not a duplication on that. So anyway, she's working on that. Also, uh, the men, I think, are going to be meeting again uh, Tuesday night. Is that correct? Uh, Scott Gunner is uh, more or less heading that up, getting uh, some young men together for uh, fellowship and maybe study. Uh, going to be a couple of baby showers, one for Rebecca Mound, February the 18th, and also uh, Amber Fike for her uh, grandbaby, her daughter-in-law. So keep that in mind. That's March the 5th. We're going to have a marriage workshop uh, with uh, titled His Shoes, Her Shoes on April the 12th and the 13th. That will be Friday evening and most of the day Saturday. So you might want to put that on your calendar so you can be here. We'd like to have everybody participate in that that can. And also uh, Steve Worley and Adam Cox, both of them are working in Nigeria. We support that work. And they're going to be here January the 28th. That'll be, uh, what is that, two weeks from today. And one of them will be teaching a class or speaking during the class period time, and the other would be preaching for us at the worship service. So mark your calendar. You want to be here to hear the work that's been going on in Nigeria. Steve and Adam both will be here. Also, uh, let's keep these people in their prayers. Keep Jim in your prayers, Jim Busby, Brenda Camp. She's going to have cataract surgery January the 31st. Uh, Paul Dismain, he had cataract surgery last Thursday. And he was telling me a while ago, they've got him uh, on a schedule. He can't lift anything over so many pounds for the next two weeks. Mary now Faith, she had that surgery, but she is real weak, not able to walk. So let's keep Mary Nell in her, in her prayers. David Mays is home. He wasn't at the VA hospital, but he's home. I talked to him yesterday afternoon, and He's doing fairly well. Keep Carolyn Hawkins and Ann Floyd's mother in your prayers. Also keep Eugenia Hockett. She's not in her bulletin there today, but uh, talked to her the other day, and she's not doing well at all. I've got a good uh, couple of things to share with you, good news. Uh, James, Haley, uh, Connor. Emerson and Lincoln, Nicholas, they decided they're going to be uh, permanent members here with us, and uh, they wanted that announced, and we wanted to announce it so the whole congregation will know that uh, they're going to be worshiping with us and working with us, and we're so delighted to have them with us uh, here. But uh, I think most everybody probably knows you guys, but would you guys stand up? Oh. 
So everybody can recognize you. <laughs> but anyway, we are so we're so delighted to have you guys. It's a blessing to have you. I know it's been a blessing since you've been attending with us. We're so grateful that you're going to be a part of us and be working with us. We know you'll be a blessing to us. We hope we'll be a blessing to you. God bless you. And also, I'm going to read this. Uh, Scott Gunter and, uh, wrote this. Dear church family, I want to express my deepest gratitude for the warmth and heartfelt welcome that you have extended to me and my family as we embarked on the journey of finding a new church home. Your kindness, acceptance, and genuine hospitality have truly touched our hearts and made us feel embraced and valued within this community. The love and the support that we have received from each of you have been a source of great comfort and encouragement as we navigate this important transition in our lives. Your dedication to creating a welcoming environment is truly inspiring, and we are eager to continue our spiritual journey alongside such a wonderful congregation. Thank you for opening your doors and your hearts to us, and we look forward to growing and serving together in faith with sincere appreciation. The Gunters, that's Scott, Lauren, Landon, Ellie. We're glad to have you guys with us. Known Scott since he was a little old toddler. And uh, so it's such a blessing to have uh, Scott and his family with us. When he came back, he had a family. And... Uh, <laughs> That was a little bit odd. When you uh, get a little bit older, you uh, you get to look and you think about those those that are younger, and you and you think that can't be them. They got to be this tall. This tall. <laughs> but anyway, we're so delighted to have you guys with us, and look forward to a long-lasting relationship serving God's kingdom. God bless each of you. Thank you guys for that. If you would bow with me for a word of prayer, we'll enter our worship service. Father, we're so thankful. For the blessings that you've given us in our daily lives, for keeping us safe, for blessing us with health, for blessing us with our families, and for our friends and our neighbors. And especially, Father, we thank you for our spiritual family that encourages us, that motivates us, Father, to continue in the race for life. And we pray your blessing upon them. Father, we pray for all those that are sick among us, those that are not among us today. We're thankful that you brought Jim back to us. We pray that you'll be with those that we mentioned today that are hurting, and that you'll give them, Father, the thing that they need in order for they, them to get, recover their surge, recover their, 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 their health. And so I pray that you'll just uh, bless each one of us today as we enter into your worship service. And we pray that... Our, our worship will be from the heart and that as we serve you and worship you and glorify you and sing praises to you, that our worship will ascend to you as a sweet-smelling aroma and that we'll do all those things, Father, that are well-pleasing in your sight. And it's in his name, in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Six fifty six. 
656. Worthy of praises, Christ our Redeemer, worthy of glory, honor, and power, worthy of all our soul's admiration, worthy art thou, worthy art thou, worthy of riches, blessings, and honor, worthy of wisdom. you have that mark, let's turn to number 580. This will be the song before the lesson this morning, number 580. And uh, if you would, please stand and remain standing for the prayer before the lesson.
Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the day that you've blessed us with to come together and to sing these songs of praise to you, and we pray that it has been a pleasant fragrance in your ears today. Lord, we're mindful of so many of our number who are battling various illnesses, recovering from surgeries. We pray that you will bless them. We know you are the great physician, and we know that you can truly provide healing and comfort during this time. We pray for those of our number who may have family members who have suffered loss recently. We pray that you will wrap your arms of peace around them and let them know that you are here and that you are there all the time. Lord, we're thankful for our new families this morning who have decided to place membership and work alongside us here at Northside. We pray that you will bless the Gunters and the Nicholases and pray that you will help them to grow alongside us and we pray that we will be a strength of growth to them as as well that we will all strive to work together and serve together and to better outreach the community around us that needs to know christ possibly now more than ever we pray that you'll be with each one of us that we realize our purpose that we realize that we have a job to do each week and it's not just to to come here and to serve you because without you we are nothing Without the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, we would not exist. And we're so grateful for that as we were reminded in Bible class this morning. And in just a little bit, when we gather around the Lord's table, we strive to remember that death, burial, and resurrection that is still the greatest event that ever took place. And that we are daily striving to walk in your Savior's, our Savior's footsteps every day that we have opportunity. We pray that you'll continue to bless the elders here at this congregation. We pray that you will give them guidance and wisdom and spiritual wisdom to lead us as your flock of people here at this congregation. We pray that we will strive to live each and every day in your footsteps following the example set by your son, that those around us will see a difference, that they will see the peace that they so desperately need in their lives. We know that this world is a mission field, and we see day after day that this world truly is lost without you as its guide. We pray that you'll be with those in our upcoming election here in this country, that the men and women that we elect to vote to elect to office will strive to put you first, and that will, if it's your will, we will continue to have the freedom to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, there are many throughout this world who this morning are worshiping with a fear of harm. Some may worship today, and this may be the last time on this earth that they worship you. And Lord, we pray that we will never forget the true blessing that we have to come together peaceably and to worship you without fear of harm. And we pray that if it's your will, that that will continue. Lord, we pray that you will help us always to value the things that you value and to hold dear to the truths that you want us to adhere to, irregardless of what the world tells us. Pray that you'll give us strength and courage to fight the good fight and to continue on that race that you've set before us until you call us home to that eternal reward. Pray that you'll be with Josh this morning as he directs our thoughts from your word. And we're thankful for the ability that you've given him to deliver your word so clearly to us so that we may better understand it and apply it to our lives. Be with us now as we go through the rest of this service and that everything we say and do is a pleasant fragrance and aroma to you. This is our hope and prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
How did this stump? How did this stump of David's family will grow? A shoot, yes. A new branch bearing fruit from the old root, and the spirit of the Lord will reset on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Thank you for that. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. And if you have your Bibles, we are going to be looking in detail at the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, which is where Landon just read from. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll give you guys a second to get there as we get ourselves brought up to speed this morning, get a little warmed up, warm up our brains, just like we're trying to warm up our own selves, right? It's, it's funny to see how many people are wearing sweaters this morning, myself included, and I've already been told a couple times by my wife as well that I look like a fancy old man in the sweater. But I, I should have just went ahead and bought the one with the elbow pads on it in that case. But... I'm glad that you guys are here this morning, brave in the cold. Hope you guys stay safe the rest of the day and stay warm, well-fed, all of that. Here in Isaiah, we've been studying through the Bible in a year, and I wanted to bring up this chart that, that usually rolls through in our announcements, you know, because this is where we're at. We're halfway, we're over halfway through our chronological reading of Scripture. And as you can kind of see there in our timeline chronologically, we're getting ready to go into exile. We're getting ready to go into Assyrian captivity, which will then turn to Babylonian captivity, and then Persian captivity, then the Persians will send us home. Any Jew that wants to go home will be sent home. That's going to be the return there. But Isaiah here is preaching in Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and Israel is in the northern kingdom. Well, aren't God's people supposed to be united, right? Is, is God not against division? Well, he is. But over in First Kings, Second uh, Kings, chapter twelve, the kingdom divides between Jeroboam and Rehoboam because Rehoboam made a foolish mistake. And you probably have a map in the back of your Bibles, and and if you don't, that's okay. You'll, you'll still get to heaven. You'll just get there last, but that's all right. And and you see there the map where the kingdom actually divides in half: Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Israel in the north never had a good king. Not one. Jeroboam being the first one, they never had a good king. Judah did a little bit better, but you never knew, was it going to be a good king or a bad king? And what's going to happen? Or, or is this going to be, you know, a time of peril? Is this going to be a time of religious reform? And in our case, Isaiah is in the south, in Judah, preaching, prophesying when God called him there to preach amongst all the peoples. But he also had special access to the judges and to the court system because he was already well ingrained within those very places before God even called him to be his prophet. And in chapter 10, all the way up to this point, between his call in chapter 6 and up to the end of chapter 10, we're talking about here come the Assyrians. Here comes the bad guys, basically. Here they come. They're getting ready to wage war. And they're getting ready to come and bring y'all into captivity. Why? Is, has God gone against his promises? Has God gone back on his word? No. In fact, he's keeping his word, and that's why this is actually taking place. But they're described in verse 34 of chapter 10, the last verse there. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You see, throughout this, I'm going to sum this up for you. God 
here speaking through Isaiah is likening Assyria to his axe, his judgment. And here he comes chopping down the forest of Lebanon. The, the important thing to know there is that's a place where the biggest and the strongest trees were. And it doesn't matter your might. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you plan. Judgment is coming because you have been disobedient. That's the point of what he's saying there. And he's left them in nothing but stumps by the time they come into captivity when he takes them again and again. Then chapter 11 verse 1 starts to make a little bit more sense because they've left nothing but the stumps of the trees that they've cut down. And from the stump, meaning a remnant, comes the Messiah, a remnant being a small amount. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here in Isaiah, and this is not the first time in Isaiah, we are talking about Jesus. We are talking about the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the one that will come, the one in this chapter that will bring peace and prosperity back to his people. You mean all the way in Isaiah, all the way this far back in our Old Testament, we're already talking about Jesus? Oh, yeah. And in fact, here on the screen, I thought it'd be interesting just to put how many verses talk specifically, uniquely about Jesus. This is not verses that include talking about the church. This is not including verses that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself would quote from Isaiah. These are verses just about Jesus. You know, it's been nicknamed by several commentators, Isaiah being the fifth gospel. It's kind of funny when you think about it and it makes sense. We are preaching about Jesus. Isaiah is preaching about Jesus. What is the stump of Jesse? Over back in 1 Samuel 16, you see when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, who's David's father, and you see that he's going through the sun, seeing which one will be the king, which one is going to be the anointed. And finally, last, it was David. And David was anointed there to be king one day. And over, I want you to look with me in 2 Samuel 7. Hold your place there in Isaiah, but look with me in 2 Samuel 7, and then I want you to look with me in Psalm 89. There is a covenant that's made with David that's part of the seed promise, seed covenant, seed promise, that began with Abraham, basically through this one long family from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and onward, David coming through that as well that God is going to bring the seed, God is going to bring the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ through this one long family. And he says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now at this point we're reading in 2 Kings, sorry, 2 Samuel, and we're thinking, well that's Solomon, right? He's coming right after him. But no, because the next verse tells us that his kingdom is going to be established forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's kingdom's not here. So we're not talking about Solomon. We might be in part in that first verse, but ultimately here he is talking about what is coming, who is coming in the future. And then I look over. I look over in Psalm chapter 89. Y'all there with me? I should have warned you we might be... You got to get your, your fingers ready to flip through all these pages today. Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David my servant, 
With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then he talks about through the Davidic line, the Vedic covenant, however you want to put it, continuing on. We don't have all the time in the world, unfortunately. But look down verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules. Watch this. We're in verse 30. Because this goes back to Deuteronomy 28. And it goes back to the question we started with. God, why are you bringing judgment? God, why, why are you making your people a remnant? Are you going back on your word? Are you going back on your promises? No. Because Deuteronomy 28 is echoed here as well. Not just the debated promise. Verse 30. If my children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. You want to underline and circle something? There it is. I will not go back on my word, God says. My promise that you will be my people. My promise that the Savior will come through you specifically as well through the house of Judah. I will keep. Verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. God, are you going back on your word here? No, not at all. In fact, he's making it to where he is bringing out the best result from a bad situation. What are they doing that's so wrong in this time? We talked about the six problems last week that they have, and honestly... It's not hard to look around today and see that in our own world, in our own country, because history repeats itself. But one of the biggest things, the last thing that's there that we talked about that is pertinent to today, I'm back in Isaiah 11, is about their crooked judges, about their judges who could be bribed and who could be swayed. Quite literally, as we put it before, it's the best justice that money can buy or the best justice that money can bribe, we might say. Because all of them were crooked. All of them, for the most part, were evil, were not bringing good judgments. They were not following the law of, Lord, of their God. And I'm over here in Isaiah 11. Look in verse 2 with me. This is about the description of that coming Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What does that mean? That means that he is going to have the very presence, the very essence. He is the person of God. And what that means is he will be the perfect judge. He's going to list six things here now that add up to him being the perfect judge. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. I think we understand what understanding means and wisdom in part, but it's mainly here about having the skill to be able to make good judgments he's sharp he's not fooled you see these other judges they're able to be fooled and swayed and bribed but not him because he's got understanding he's got insight and perspective and he's perceptive in a way that no normal person could ever be he knows he understands not just on an intellectual level but on an emotional level as well the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This counsel and might, his power and virtue, his plan, his guidance. I love that phrase there, though. The knowledge 
and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge being a personal experience, personal knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, but he knows God intimately. Fear of the Lord, we hear that several times in the Old Testament. And the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs puts it, what is the fear of the Lord? Is it us just, just shaking in our boots all the time? Well, maybe, and we would be right to do so. But what he's really uh, harping on as well is reverence for God, an awe factor when thinking about God, and a love of God and His ways. Not just a love and awe of, of the idea of God and what we wish that He was, but He is an absolute awe of who God actually is and His ways. And His delight is God's ways. His joy is God's ways. It's where life is most fulfilling to Him. And we've got to ask the question on a personal level. Is God's way, is that what gets me out of bed? Is what God wants and doing that, is that what is most fulfilling in my life? These six things here add up to him being the qualified and the perfect judge. And he goes on to say in the same breath, verse four, uh, verse three, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Think about uh, uh, seeing an accident, like, like a car accident, and it's at a, a four-way intersection, and you've got a person on each corner, okay? Does that make sense so far? And everyone witnessed this accident. Everyone saw that there was an accident. A policeman comes, and he's getting the reports, and he's going to hear something different from this guy, what he saw and heard, than he saw and heard over here. This guy, he saw, well, he accelerated without stopping, and he just uh, didn't even hit the brakes or anything. But this guy over here saw that he accelerated so that he could get out of the way because this guy wasn't hitting his brakes. And we're starting to get a more full picture of the story of what happened with the accident. But you see here, he could also, judges and, and in the courts, you could even see it today, presenting a case with, with falsehoods, presenting a case with not the full truth and if it's not a full truth then it is a full lie but he can't be bribed this judge he understands deeper than anyone else could he sees past the the surface level things and he doesn't allow what he hears to sway him he can't be bribed he can't be bullied he can't be swayed from the righteousness of god verse four but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I circled that word equity and looked it up. It's very interesting. Yeah, it means fairness. But quite literally, it's used in other places that's in the Old Testament. Just talking about a plane, a field, a plane. Why? Because it's level. It's fair. It's equal. And he's quite literally here saying that everybody under this judge gets a fair ruling. Everybody under this judge gets what they deserve or what they plead for from him. I like that because it comes down to it here talking about judging the poor and the meek, the poor that can't afford to bribe the judges, the meek who are too soft-spoken to be able to want to do that, to speak up for themselves and just accept it. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
He is constantly clothed in righteousness and justice. There's a phrase that, that I like in the New Testament that talks about these loins, and it's what they wear. It's their clothing. It says to gird up thy loins like a man. And the idea is, if you think about what they're wearing back in this time, it's kind of a longer, it's not a dress, but it's a longer kind of robe. And to gird it up literally means to pull it up and tie it around your legs, basically make shorts out of it. That way you can draw your sword and run into battle a whole lot easier. And so when he's talking about this belt for his loins and this righteousness of his uh, belt of his waist as well, he is actionable. He is actively faithful. He is actively righteous. Ready to go at a moment's notice, he's already. He doesn't have to start at any time. He never has to start because he never stops being righteous. He never stops being faithful. He's constantly clothed with it. He is recognized by that. To which I have to ask, what, are, what do we wear sometimes? A sweater? No, that's not what I mean. What, what do we wear? What do people recognize us by? In Acts chapter 4, verse 13 when they're talking to John and Peter, all the Jews, I like the phrase there, verse 13, where it says, they recognized they had been with Jesus because of what they were saying and because of their faithful action. What does it take then to sway you and I away from the righteousness of God? What is it that tempts me most? I've got to take an inventory. I've got to take a, a, a self-look and be honest about it. Isaiah what we talked about last week in chapter 6, he knew. He said he, when he saw the Lord, he said the first thing was, Woe is me, I am a sinner, I have unclean lips. And he knew that he had unclean lips, and he brought that openly for God to fix. There's a quote that I like from The Art of War, the book. It says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to make it more biblical. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know that Satan's working against you. And you've got to know that he's trying to trap you and snare you in every way that you are tempted by. You might be tempted in a different way than me. You can't tempt me with boiled okra. You can slick a runway with that thing. I'll sit down at the table with you, though, if you got fried okra. What tempts me may not tempt you. But, on the other hand, we might be tempted by the same things together sometimes. And he's going to talk a lot about togetherness, so I'll hold off on that. But we got to know our enemy. you got to know yourself and your shortcomings. And then you must know the Messiah and that he is the source of for the fix of the problem, the sin problem. He goes on in verse 6. So verse 1 through 5 is about the Messiah. Verse 6 and following is about the church. It's about the results of the Messiah. It's about the kingdom that the Messiah brings. He says in verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. None of this is making sense, does it? And the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze. Bears don't graze on grass. The nursing child, sorry, I skipped one. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And a weaned child shall put his hand on an adder's den. That's another snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. 
For the earth is full, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is this passage about heaven? Is this passage about the church to which I'm going to say yes to both? In fact, quite literally, when you think about it and how the church actually is, the church, the body of Christ, is literally a piece of heaven on earth. And I love it when we add new members to a local body and when we're working together in the local body. But don't forget that it is a worldwide body as well. And don't miss the beauty of what the church is now today as we sit here. It was not an afterthought. It was not plan B. The church was part of the plan from before in the beginning when God said, let there be light. Before that even happened, the church was in the mind of God to work to bring. You know, it's, it's funny when we think about this picture of peace and harmony here. I call it unnatural peace when we think about it. For us, it is unnatural, the things that are taking place there. We're often so worried, I am, about the safety of our own children, maybe, but also about the safety and well-being of people in general in other places. But in Him and together as God's people, it's the last place that I should be worried about. The church is where people of all backgrounds, whether you are a bear, whether you're an ox or a lion, whatever it might be, it's a place where all people of all backgrounds are brought together in peace and harmony. The person who to the world was a dangerous cobra before, he was somebody we don't even want to mess with, is now as caring and cared for as a child. Life and backgrounds that, that have us pitted against each other in the world like a lion and an ox in the natural world, we are now in harmony in him. You could be a liar, you could be a cursor, you could be a drug user, you could be a drunk, you could be an outright awful person in this world, but be changed when you come to obey the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ in a miraculous way that would not happen at any other time. And how beautiful is that picture of what today is? That's all of us together. This is a picture of what the success of the Messiah is, the picture of the success of Christ. And it's a picture of a return to how things were in the Garden of Eden as well. Ever since Genesis 3, and I've said this a couple times, and here's your verse to see it. Ever since Genesis 3, God has been working to bring back that garden relationship with him that he originally created and originally purposed. Verse 10, he goes on. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. We know who that is, right? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Paul uses this very accurately, of course, in Romans 15, talking about how the Gentiles here, all the nations, not just for the Jews, but he is a banner. He is a signal for all people to join together under him and to bring back the remnant, he says, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the stump from verse 1 that was cut down, the remains of his people from Assyria from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. All his people united back in him as he was. He will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel. 
and gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It was important for me to show you that map at the beginning, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Because from then on in your Old Testament, when you read Israel, sometimes it's talking about both the north and the south kingdom. But when you read Ephraim, it's the northern kingdom alone. When you read Judah, it's the southern kingdom alone. Sometimes Jacob is used as the north, but that's neither here nor there for this point. And we, we see in the New Testament time and time again, especially right before the fruit of the Spirit are listed in Galatians 5, around verse 22, 23, listing all these awful sins that we would look at and go, ugh, gross. And in the very middle of them, he lists division. Because God hates division and always has, even and especially here when his people and his kingdom divided amongst the north and the south there. What we're talking about in a word, in a New Testament word, a churchy word that we throw around a lot is reconcile and reconciliation. It means to bring back. It means to restore peace and harmony first with God and secondly with each other. Look in verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim, the north, shall depart, and those who harass Judah, the south, shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There is peace. There is no more division truly among God's people. Look over with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. I like this verse. There's several we could look at. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 12, he says, Remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember last week? I know you do. Perfectly remember last week's sermon, as we all do. But Isaiah also says in 59 verse 2, that your sins, your iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God. So what's a problem of sin? Well, one is it separates us from God. But Christ being the answer, verse 12 here in Ephesians 2, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that great? We've been brought back into harmony and peace with him. But it gets gooder. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's talking about you and I from whatever background, from whatever race, from whatever anything. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I didn't put a picture of it this week, but in the temple. In the temple, you got several courtyards. One of the courtyards there was specifically for the Gentiles. That's where you stay, Gentiles. You're not the Jews. You're not part of us. You stay over here. And it was actually further and further away because when you think about in the most holy place where the ark was, that's where God is. And so then the Jews had their own space and everything else going on. But then they separated the Gentiles even further away from God. And really in the act of doing so, they're separating their own selves further from God. Though they're, quote, they're physically closer they're spiritually further away because of that dividing wall of hostility. What did Paul just say? The dividing wall of hostility has been broke down. 
Christ came and broke down that wall and the barrier between anyone and God, between anyone and any them that it might be. The fighting against one another is not only supposed to be done, but we're supposed to be one together, as he says, with anyone that's in Christ. That's why we try so hard. We make it part of our, our verbal mission statement, a vision statement, to make this a home, to make it a place where you know that we are one mind, one spirit together in this one body. And the beautiful thing is it's not just here. But when you go and you find the church anywhere in a different town, a different state, a different country, you know you're home when you're with your brothers and your sisters there. I remember going to Mexico City on mission trip during school. You're required to go on like a week-long foreign trip. And we went there. Couldn't speak the language, obviously. I had Google Translate right here going on my phone and telling it to tell them whatever and vice versa. But I wasn't uncomfortable. They weren't uncomfortable. It wasn't odd. They were singing in Spanish. We were singing in English. We knew that this was our family. We knew that we were home, even though we were away from home. We knew that this is where our brothers and sisters were. It doesn't matter where you go. That's the picture of the church that's being painted here in Isaiah as well. Christ wanted to remove hostility with you and I so badly that he died for it. He died so that you can have peace with God and so that we can have peace with one another. And so if there's a wall, I've got to break down the wall. If there's a wall, I've got to climb over the wall. I've got to get rid of it between us as well. He went far out of his way to reconcile me and then... He'll tell us in 2 Corinthians that we are now given the ministry of reconciliation as well. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is on the road to reconciliation. Reconciliation is the result of it. You forgive them, go prove it. Are you doing everything in your ability to have that cobra and baby, that ox and lion grazing together harmony picture? And the next few verses tell us why it's necessary, why it's important. Isaiah Chapter 11, verse 14. But they, remember how we were just separated? Now he's saying they together, they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. Who are all these people? They're all the old enemies. They're all the present enemies of God. And what we're symbolically saying that's true as well is look at God's victory with the remnant and look at every enemy, every sin, every struggle and problem that faces you and I or that has beat us individually in the past. When we're reconciled together under the Messiah, we are of one purpose and one spirit and we overcome together. Isaiah here. God's given them the message, but Isaiah here is preaching the necessary nature of the church. There is united success in him that cannot be found anywhere else. Let me just give you two more verses, and this is where we'll land. Look with me in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, in his letter to each of these churches, In the first two and three chapters, there is one word that he uses for each one. Your version might say one. My version might say overcome or conquer. Your might say the other. But in each one, he tells them how to conquer. 
And I like the word overcome better. Mine uses conquer, but so I'm going to say overcome. The one who overcomes, verse 5, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You and I, we've got to overcome. And the key to our success is Christ, including his body as well, the church. But mainly, of course, following where the head directs. Then you look over in chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered, same word, they have overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. In this time when Revelation was being written, Christians who were confessing Christ were in fact dying for confessing. But they overcame. They overcame together. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the word of their testimony, the faith that they professed in Christ and the actionable faith that they lived their lives by. And because they overcame, they were divinely rescued. That's the same thing that's being said in the last few verses of Isaiah 15 and 16. I'll read it. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. It's, it's a picture similar to when God parted the Red Sea and they got out of Egypt with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. He's saying they're going to be rescued. But clearly this is no ordinary happening. This is no ordinary feat. This was a divine rescue. And if you and I are in sin, we need a divine rescue. And I know the rescuer. It's the Messiah, the stump that came from the stump of Jesse. It is Christ who was proclaimed all throughout the Old Testament. Do we see how important it is to study our Old Testament? I've heard it said some, some people before, I don't think they're very truthful about it, but saying, well, we're red-letter Christians only. We only care about what's written in red, right? But the fact of the matter is, what's red, quote red, is actually in every page of the book that you have. Every bit of it written by him and every bit of it in the Old Testament pointing us forward to him that you and I can now look back and see how God worked the plan, brought the Savior who lived, died, buried, and was resurrected, and you and I are looking forward. We may not can understand quite that picture that we saw of both the church and of eternity, but we're looking forward to the time when he comes again the perfect judge, and the perfect Savior. I hope that you trust in him. You know, when, when the innocent have a perfect judge, they don't fear the judgment. When the innocent have him, we look forward to the judgment. I want to be innocent. And the only way I can be innocent is if I obey the gospel and if I get under his banner, as Isaiah talked about. And if that's not you, I desperately want it to be you. And if maybe you've gone astray and you're ready to come back as part of that remnant that he brings back time and time again, God's always ready to bring you back. Let us know as we stand together and sing.
I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Will you pray with me? 
Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come together and remember that ultimate perfect love demonstrated to us by you giving us your sinless son who did nothing to deserve what he went through. But for us, Father, to be reconciled with you, he gave up everything that we might once again be pleasing in your sight. Father, as we partake of this bread, we pray that you help us reflect back onto the suffering that Jesus suffered for us. We pray you help us to remember that he conquered death, Father, and through him conquering death, we can conquer it too. We give you thanks and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Father, we pray that you will bless this cup. 
that we are about to partake of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pray with me, please. Dear Father in heaven, 
as we come here today to gather what you have prospered us, help us to always be thankful for each and every blessing you give us each and every day, for our health and the love of our families and for whatever you allow us to earn in our lives. Help us to give back with a free and loving heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a reminder, we'll be doing uh, reviewing the budget just immediately after prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come and hear another portion of your word. Lord, we bless Josh and his family for being able to be here to, to do that for us. Lord, be with the sick. Get them back to their much-wanted health. 
be with everyone as we leave here today. Give everyone a safe trip home or a safe trip to their destination. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.